This is the Victory Podcast. Every week, we'll share an inspiring message about God's grace and forgiveness for you, wherever you're at in life. Your victory starts now. We are walking through the book of Genesis, looking at the origin of everything, how everything got going, the origin of theology and truth and life and relationships and even the origin of where all our sin and mess came from. Today, we're going to go to the second page of the Bible and we'll look at the origin of marriage. That's what it says. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he had brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now the definition of marriage. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for gathering us around your word. We pray that as we go back to the very beginning of these ancient scriptures, uh, that we understand what they mean. You wanted them written down, and you wanted us to learn and preach and teach and learn them. So so tell us what you want us to know. Speak to our hearts. Guide our lives. And don't let anything I'm doing get in the way of the work of your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. Marriage, sex, sexuality, these are some of the hardest topics for us to discuss in modern culture. In fact, I think I've been preaching here about three and a half years, and I think it was my third sermon. I was assigned the sex sermon, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, so I had to give the sex talk right as I was starting out here at church. And then about a couple of months ago, we went through the Glad You Asked series, and, and you asked that we preach on things like human sexuality and divorce, and these were, some, again, some of the most challenging sermons I have had to preach, and today we're, we're focusing on marriage. Again, a very challenging topic to talk about, especially in our modern world. And there's a couple different reasons for that, I think. One is that marriage is all about commitment. The the biblical definition of marriage is that it's a lifelong commitment between one man and one woman. And we don't commit to anything anymore. Uh, 
I feel this in my own life. I, I don't feel as committed to things as my grandparents were. I remember my grandparents, my grandpa, he was committed to everything he did. He was committed to the, to the church he belonged to, the, the, the synod he belonged, the church body. He was committed to the job, the organization he worked for. He was committed to his community. He was committed to his, the baseball team he played for. He was committed to everything. And my generation, we just don't value commitment at that same level. And I don't know if it's because we're just more of a, a mobile generation or for whatever it is, but then to be told that it's a lifelong commitment, well, that's something very challenging for my generation and younger to accept. I think another reason why this is such a challenging topic to talk about is because marriage, as I remember my, my pastor on our wedding day said, that, that marriage is the closest relationship you will ever have with another human being. You're closer with your spouse than you are with your parents, with your, your children, with your friends. It is the closest relationship between two human beings. And so you have the greatest potential to bless that person, to encourage that person, to, to help that person, to serve that person. But you also have the greatest potential to wound that person. And so just bringing up marriage can lead to so many wounds and so much pain and so much suffering because maybe somebody that you were married to didn't live up to their vows. Maybe you were abused. Maybe you were the one who left your vows. Whatever it was, it brings up so much pain and heartache. And so to be honest, I'd rather skip over this chapter of the Bible. If we're going to go through Genesis 1 through 10 and 1 through 11, I'd rather go Genesis 1 and then let's jump to Genesis 3 or 4. But, but we're just walking through the Bible and this is what we're walking through. And so it's very challenging. And yet the reason we're going through this is because it's actually going to find some encouragement. It's in the Bible for a reason, to lead us, to guide us, to help us, to serve us. And so... That's what we're going to walk through. We're continuing our sermon series, Origins. We're looking at the origin of everything, and we're going to look at this very challenging section. And, and the question we want to answer today is, why is it so important that we continue to uphold the biblical definition of marriage? And to answer that question, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2. Now, the reason we're going to go back to the origin of marriage is because that's what Jesus did. Marriage has always been controversial. It's, it's always been a painful subject to talk about. And so when Jesus was confronted in Matthew 19, when he was confronted on his views of marriage and divorce and all these different things, he said, well, in the beginning, this is what God designed. And he took God's people back to Genesis 2. So that's what we want to do. We're followers of Jesus. And so we want to follow his example. And so this is what we read in Genesis chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And so this is one way to describe how everything started. I think there's some theological reasons that God describes it this way, and there's some scientific reasons. 
First of all, theologically, what Pastor Bill brought up last week was that we were created, that God formed us. The Hebrew is actually, the Hebrew word for man is Adam or Adam. Adam is the word for mankind. And the word for dust is Adama. And so the Hebrew sounds like this. Then the Lord God formed uh, Adam from the Adama. And so it's supposed to show us our, our fragility, that we're fragile, we're made from dust. And yet when God breathes life into us, we, we become alive. God designed us. That, that we are precious, not because of the material we are made from, we're precious because God made us for a purpose. That's how it always is. When you make something, when you make a cake or you make a building or you work on a project or you plant a garden, when you create something, you do that for a purpose. And so it's really, really essential to ask the question, was I created or was I here by accident? If I was created, then I have value and then I have a purpose because that's what always happens to things that are created. And then scientifically, we know that there's no such thing as what's called spontaneous generation, that, that non-life will never be able to produce life. It's scientifically impossible for a dead thing to become a living thing or to make a living thing, that life comes from life. And so the only reason that there is human life is because God is the author of life. He is the source of life and he made life. And so God created this beautiful thing called life. He, he created human beings, created everything. And yet there was something about his creation that wasn't good. It says in verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. Now there's all sorts of reasons why it's not good to be alone. Uh, we were created to be social creatures. A few years ago, um, I read in the, the Harvard Medical uh, Journal, it said that it is, it is more dangerous for your health to be alone than to, than to smoke a pack of cigarettes a day. You know, we look at smoking, this is bad, it's going to cause cancer, right? All these different things. But, but they found out that it's actually worse for your health to be all alone, to not have social interaction. I think that's what can be so dangerous as we've gone through this really challenging time in our, in our history the last few years, that people were alone. And it's not good for human beings to be alone. We are created to be around other people. But in the context of this, I think there's another reason, a more specific reason why it was not good for man to be alone. It was not good because... God had given human beings a mission. He'd given this to all creatures, but especially to human beings. In Genesis chapter 1, it says this, that God said to the human beings, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And the reality is, Adam, a human being by themselves, they can't fulfill that mission. If God just created a man and that was it, that would have been a very short story of civilization, right? Adam all by himself can't increase, can't multiply, can't fill the earth. It's impossible. And so God said, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
Now we look at that, and, and in the English, it kind of looks like God was saying um, that he was creating a maid or a servant for Adam, but that's really not what the Hebrew word means. In fact, this word is often used to describe Jesus as a deliverer. Some people actually have translated this word as deliverer instead of helper or sustainer I saw in one translation, and it's suitable for him. Um, that means that he, this, this other person would complement him, would fulfill him, would be the counterpart, would, would allow them to complete this mission of filling the earth and ruling over and taking care of it and, and passing this on to the next generation. But the Lord wanted Adam to see that he had this need, that he was lacking something, that he couldn't fulfill God's mission all on his own. And so it says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So God's like a, a really good teacher who does deductive teaching, right? Where you don't give the answer right away. They let the student come to their own conclusion. He gave Adam this assignment to go around naming all the animals. And there's a boy goat and a girl goat and a boy giraffe and a girl giraffe. And, and everyone seems to have this partner to be able to fulfill this mission of filling the earth and, and multiplying and, and working together. But for Adam, there wasn't anything that anyone that complimented him, wasn't anyone that could help him fulfill that mission. And so the Lord became the first anesthesiologist it says in verse 21, uh, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. I don't know what the significance is, but of taking his rib uh, literally means just to take from his side. Um, some people have said, well, he didn't take from his foot or his heel as if to say that that man is to be over the woman and, and uh, to control the woman, but from the side to see that the, the woman is to complement and to be alongside the man as an equal. Whatever the significance of this, uh, it says in the next verse, Then the Lord God made the woman from the rib he had taken of the man, and he brought her to the man. This reminds me of kind of like a, a divine wedding ceremony. We went to a wedding yesterday, and, and, and the part that always makes me tear up is this part, where, where the, the father walks the bride down the aisle. I don't know if this happens to you, but when you stand up, you turn around, you see the father walking the bride down the aisle in her white dress, and everybody gets pretty emotional because of that significance of what's happening in that moment that this father is giving his daughter to this, this man. And that seems to be what's going on in this moment here. It says, and the Lord God brought the woman to the man. It seems like Adam understood the significance of this moment and, and was moved by this moment because he breaks out in the first Hebrew parallelism poetry. He breaks out in a poetry. He says, now this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. In other words, this woman is amazing. She, she's from me. She's made from me. She's made for me. She completes me. This is an amazing gift that we get to be together. And so God declares the definition of marriage in the next verse. 
And this is the definition that Jesus goes back to, that Paul goes back to. This is what it means biblically to be married. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and he's united to his wife and the two become one flesh. The biblical definition of marriage is when a person leaves their previous family, that, that they're united to their spouse, and they become one flesh. And that's especially talking about that sexual union, but, but one flesh in every way possible, that they're united emotionally and financially, and that they care for each other, that if, if the other person hurts, they hurt too, that they're united in every way possible. And this beautiful gift that God gives leads to something that humans deeply long for. And it says in the last verse, it kind of usually makes the, the kids snicker, but, but this is what it says. It's kind of a strange verse, but really the fulfillment of marriage is this, that Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is ultimately what we're all longing for. You know, usually when we... We meet someone, or you go on a first date, or you, 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 you apply for a job. You don't, you're not fully known. You, you give them the resume. You tell them what you want them to hear. You don't let them know everything because you're afraid that if people knew everything about you, they would run from you. And yet here in marriage, it says that they knew each other, they were naked, they, they knew everything about that other person, and they felt no shame. They were fully known and fully loved. And now we, we ultimately get that only today in Jesus, but that is the potential of what marriage can bring, to be fully known, and yet the person doesn't run from you. And we look at this beautiful gift that, that we didn't come up with, that we didn't think about um, this beautiful gift. And even for people who don't believe this, that's why we throw parties. That's why we have, we spend all this money on weddings. That's why we make such a big deal out of it and get the white dress and spend thousands of dollars and throw this incredible party because we know something significant is happening. And we know that this is actually a gift of God. It wasn't something we made up. It wasn't just something that we thought would be cool. This is a, a, something that God designed, just like he designed the flowers of the field and he designed animals, he designed our weather, all the things he designed, he also designed this marriage for us. And so that's why uh, we can answer our opening question. Why is it so important that we continue to uphold the biblical definition of marriage? Because marriage was designed by God to be a beautiful gift to humanity. And yet, as I mentioned, that hasn't been everybody's story. In fact, I would say that even those of you who say you have the healthiest marriages, you have felt the pain of sin. Because you put two sinful people together who are selfish, and you put this in the one flesh union, and, and it's so easy to cause pain and suffering to that other person because of our own selfishness. It's the closest relationship that we'll ever have, and so it also has the potential to cause the deepest pain. And unfortunately, that's been the story for many of you, and you've let me in. You've let me into that story. You've let Pastor Bill into that story, and it's been really, really hard. And that's why we need another story. We need the story of Jesus. 
See, actually, that, that story is even found even before Jesus, pointing ahead to Jesus. I don't know how much you know about There's a little book in the Bible called Hosea. I don't know if you know that story about Hosea, but, but God told Hosea, the prophet, he said, go marry a prostitute. Go marry this unfaithful person. And that's what he did. Hosea marries this woman named Gomer, and, and he's faithful to her, and she leaves him. She runs away on him. And God says, go marry her again. And she runs away and she's, she's unfaithful again. And she actually has to give her life over to slavery. And in the kind of the apex of the book, he goes and buys her freedom and takes her home again. And actually, do you know what Hosea, how you'd say Hosea in Greek? Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus. When we meet him in the New Testament, uh, Jesus actually calls himself the bridegroom. He says he is the bridegroom, and then he calls the church, all of his believers, the bride. And then Paul, he, he builds on that, and he says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Well, what did Christ do? He gave himself up for us washing us with water through the word, talking about our baptisms, to make us holy and blameless. That Jesus, for all the ways that we have been broken and all the ways that we have pain and suffering, he was the faithful husband in a faithless world. He has made us pure, washing us with the water as a good husband to his church, us people who are, who are so filled with shame and guilt. In fact, when, when God was trying to think of the, the consummation of all of history, where all of human history is pointing, when he was thinking, all right, how am I going to describe where this world is headed? In the book of Revelation, it says, it's the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a wedding party where Jesus, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride, are finally together, and we get to celebrate where all of our pain and suffering and brokenness and all of the, the, the deep pain that we have felt because of the brokenness of our marriage is all restored, all healed in Jesus. And that's why it's so important that we hold on to this definition of marriage. Why is it so important that we continue to hold up the biblical definition of marriage? Because marriage points the work of Jesus. All of our marriages are a mess, even the best of them. But it's some glimpse and somehow we want all of our marriages to point ahead to the faithfulness of Jesus. He was that Hosea who was faithful to his bride, the church, even when we've been unfaithful. He was the one who cleansed us with the washing of water. He's the one who's done all good things. He is the perfect husband and we are his bride. And so that's why this is my takeaway to you. Honor marriage. If you're married, and if you're in a marriage where your spouse is not abusive but loving, this is your number one priority to be faithful to your spouse, to love your spouse as Christ loved the church, to give up your life for your spouse. And for those of you who I know this is so deep and so painful, I had a friend that, that told me, he said, Ben, I'm never going to get married because everyone I know in my family has gotten a divorce. And so marriage is the problem. It's broken. I, I don't want anything to do with it. And I wanted to tell him, it's not 
God's design that's the problem. It's how we, including me, how all of us have messed this up. And so if you've been through a divorce or really hard things or really painful things, put the blame where it actually is, on human beings, on sin, on Satan. There is a real Satan. There is real evil. It's not God's design. It's what we as humans have done to it. And it can only be restored and only be healed, not by renouncing marriage as an institution, but in the finished work of Jesus. Let's teach that to our kids. Let's teach that to the next generation that marriage as God designed it is good. And that's why we need a lot of help from Jesus because there's so much brokenness in our world. Let's honor marriage. Let's pray for marriage. Let's build up those who are married. And let's meet with those who've gone through broken, very difficult times and be with them. Marriage will continue to be countercultural. It will continue to be hard to talk about. And we might be tempted to never bring it up in church, to never talk about it in our families, to never bring it up with anyone else because it's such a hard topic to talk about and it's such a painful thing to talk about. But here is why I think we still need to honor marriage. Because it ultimately points us to Jesus, the perfect bridegroom and his faithfulness to us even when we've been unfaithful in his restoration, that he has been faithful even to the point of death so that we could be with him forever. So that do us part. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for all those, especially today, who heard this message and have so much pain and suffering. I pray, Lord God, that you would be with them, that you'd heal them, that you comfort them, I pray for those who are married, Lord God, that you would lead them to to make their marriage a priority. Don't let Satan slither in and cause division. And in everything, Lord God, help us to look to the perfect marriage between Jesus and his church and all the things that you have done, all the ways that you've been committed to us and faithful to us for eternity. In your name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to the Victory Podcast. Brought to you by Victory of the Lamb in Franklin, Wisconsin. For video sermon archives, more information about us, and to let us know how we can meet you where you're at, go to victoryofthelamb.com.